Well, good morning, church. It is very good to see you all here this morning to worship the living God together. If you're going to be reading along, we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 22. Yeah, 23, sorry. We're going to be in Luke 23 this morning. But today we are finishing our sermon series called The Prayers of the King. And in this sermon series, we've basically from the beginning of the gospel story to the end, we've examined the prayers of our God King, Jesus Christ, what he prayed for, how he prayed, and how God the Father answered him, because God answers prayer. It's important to remember that, and God answered Jesus. And in our sermon last week, our Lord, he moved from the shadow of the cross And he entered into its gruesome reality. Jesus had been falsely accused, mocked, scourged, spit on, humiliated. He had a crown of thorns driven into his brow. And he was forced to carry his death sentence out to Calvary's Mount, where he was hung. Nails through his hands and nails through his feet. The suffering servant described in the prophets was now coming to pass, and he was enduring the wrath of God's justice. And the spiritual reality of what was happening, Jesus bearing the punishment for our sins, was being made known through the cosmic phenomenon surrounding the crucifixion. For during those hours, the sun's light failed as the life of the sun failed. Matthew's gospel says even the ground shook, that the rocks split apart. Think about that, church. The earth was literally recoiling at the wrath of God poured out on his son. What a sight it would have been to have been there. And with a loud voice, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Screaming out in cross, screaming out to his father, why? And we know the answer why. Because there was no other way. The Son was rejected by the Father, for He who knew no sin became sin for us. That's not just this cute thing we sing, right? That's, it's fact. Jesus became the object of evil to be destroyed. Sin had to be destroyed. That's, that, the sin and God can't coexist. So when we say Jesus became sin, we're very serious about that. He became the sole object of the wrath of God. And then in one final breath, Jesus prayed his last prayer, which is the focus for our reading this morning. Out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, if you can and are willing, please stand for the reading of the Gospel of God. The word of the living God says this, starting on verse 44. It says, It was now about the sixth hour, or noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until about the ninth hour, about three o'clock. And this is all happening while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. 
And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all of his acquaintances, Jesus' acquaintances, his followers, and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Marshall, would you pray for us? Church, under the Old Testament law, how our ancestors worshipped and understood God, they would bring sacrifice, and the animal that was to be sacrificed for sins was to be examined for blemish or for defects. You could not offer a sick or defective animal. Your sacrifice had to be perfect. It had to be examined for blemish, and upon, and upon being found faultless, The animal was then sacrificed, killed in the place of the worshiper offering it. Likewise, from the moment of his birth and throughout his sinless life and up to the present, as Jesus endured the wrath of God in those dark hours, he proved he was a faultless sacrifice. He did not shy away from his destiny. But now, the end was here. Jesus' hour had finally come. The final and true sacrifice of God's Son had to be completed. Church, Jesus' simple prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, is in essence Christ asking the Father to finish the offering, to finish the sacrifice, because all sacrifice ends the same with death. There is no sacrifice if there is no death. And this is our main point for today. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is our sacrifice. He prayed these words, and he breathed his last Or as the King James Version words it, he gave up the ghost. His spirit departed his broken and shattered body. And his innocent blood oozed down the center beam of the cross into the thirsty, cursed ground. The sacrifice of the Son of God was now complete. But when we see this, and we think about the crucifixion, and we think about this scene that we retell every Easter and all throughout the year when we retell this, we have to ask ourselves a very important question. It's the central question of Christianity. What did Jesus' sacrifice actually do? What did Jesus' sacrifice factually accomplish? Why is it good news for all people of all places For all time. Not what the sacrifice of Christ makes me feel or how I think about it in a 
subjective and personal way because y'all know many people will say many things about the death of Jesus. Believers and unbelievers are alike. You can always turn on somebody on TV talking about what they think about Jesus and the death on the cross and all that stuff. Even Oprah will say things about Jesus and good things about his death on the cross. But Oprah doesn't believe it's what we're going to talk about today. So her words are, and again, we're not picking on Oprah. She just happens to be a famous example. But think of how many preachers out there will talk about the death of Jesus with the same words and the same songs, but the things we're going to talk about this morning, they don't really believe. He was just like a good guy, a good teacher, a good man, a good, someone to follow, an example to live after. They'll say stuff like that, but what we're talking about this morning, they don't believe. We're asking the really important question, what did Jesus' sacrifice actually accomplish? Like I said, we saw the phenomenon. The sun darkened, the earth shook. What did that actually do for us? What did this accomplish? That's what we want to answer this morning. Many people will say many things about the death of Christ. But again, in God's eyes, God's plan, and God's divine act of justice, what did Jesus' sacrifice factually accomplish? Not just what we feel like it did or what you think it did. What does the Bible describe the death of Jesus doing for helpless, hopeless, and damned sinners like you and like me? What did Jesus do for us? That's the question. And this is no small issue. This is really important because think about this. Have you ever doubted your faith? Don't need to show of hands, but have you ever doubted your faith? Have you ever had moments where you were unsure if God loved you anymore? Or have you ever had dreadful thoughts of, What's going to happen to me if I die tomorrow and stand before Jesus? How has the Holy Spirit of God confirmed to you, you are a child of God? That you really are saved? Or how has the Holy Spirit of God convicted or convinced you, you really are not a child of God and that you really are not saved? That you really are right with your creator or you really are not right with your creator? And the answer is the Holy Spirit of God. There's many ways he can speak to us, but the primary way the Holy Spirit gives us assurance, kind of what we're talking about this morning, the main theme is assurance. The way he does that is that he points us to the external and factual truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished on that cross. That's what we're talking about. Not just what you think and feel in the moment. Not just what you think and feel today or tomorrow. Because think of all these alternatives. If we don't look to the cross and keep our eyes fixed on it, what are you using for the measure that you are saved? You end up trusting your experience. You end up trusting your feelings. And our fallen nature, as y'all know, it's prone to deception. You cannot, tr- Bible tells us, you cannot trust your heart. It says it so many times. Do not trust what's in here or up in here. It's an unreliable measurement. 
Because we end up looking at how we have responded to the truth rather than the factual realities of the truth. Does that make sense, church? We end up looking at how I responded to the truth rather than the substance of the factual reality of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. If you ever read any theology books, it's sometimes what they'll call the objective aspects of salvation. Things that are true regardless of people believe or not believe. That's what we're talking about this morning. Because when you end up taking your eyes off the cross, your personal thoughts and your rationales become the foundation for why you're saved. We end up saying things like, well, I'm saved because uh, I believed. Or I have a lot of faith. Or I was dedicated. Or I prayed a prayer. Or I was confirmed. Or I'm an elder. I'm a pastor. I'm a deacon. Or I attend church regularly. Or I did ministry. I fed the poor. We, We say stuff like that. And what the problem is, is you become the measurement of salvation. And not just the reality of who Jesus is and what he factually accomplished on the cross for us. And this is important to me because when I was a youth minister, do you know how many youth group kids would have those private conversations at camp and they'd come and say, Pastor Adam, I don't know if I'm Christian. And then you say, well, what do you mean? And be like, I don't know if I've got, if I'm really in the faith. I don't know all these things. And they end up treating their faith like the little engine that could, where they're like, God, help me believe, help me believe, help me believe. And their faith becomes this, this roller coaster, right, of unreliable feelings. And so we'd sit down with that young person, and I'd ask him, well, how does someone become Christian? That's the question, right? How do we become Christian? Uh, trusting in Jesus that his death on the cross is sufficient? Do you believe that? Yes? Then what's the problem? And it's not trying to trick anybody, but do you see what we're saying? They were looking inward for the answer. How strongly I believe today. I tell you, it's easy to believe when things are good, right? When you're healthy, when things are awesome. But when you're sick, when you're oppressed, when things ain't going awesome, sometimes it feels like God's far away, right? So are we going to measure our salvation being right with the Almighty on the feeling and circumstance or on the reality and the factual truth that a guy named Jesus lived and died and what he did on the cross is sufficient. Not trying to trick anybody this morning. Am I clear what I'm talking about? Trusting this is not reliable. Trusting the empty cross is reliable. You and I are not trustworthy in our own hearts already. We need something outside of us to look at, to fix our eyes on. That's what we're talking about this morning. Because the gospel is not meant to be complex. But we need to talk about the realities of what the scripture describes this death on the cross actually does for helpless, hopeless, and damned sinners like you and me to make us right with the Almighty. Let's explore that. Church, Christ's sacrifice accomplished three factual truths, things that are true even if you don't believe in Jesus. And I want to say this cautiously. Load this up front now. 
I am not a universalist, meaning I don't believe people just automatically go to heaven. You have to trust Jesus, right? But what I am saying is that, and your up and down roller coaster of, do I believe a lot today or believe a little? These things are true for you, even when you don't feel like they're true for you. Does that make sense what I just said? Okay, so no one says, Adam said everybody's going to heaven. Not saying that. Cliff, did I say that? Praise God. We're not universalists. If you do not trust Jesus and what he did on the cross, none of what we're talking today matters to you. But we'll get to that to the end. But if you have, these things are true even when you ain't feeling it. Does that make sense? There are three things Christ's death factually accomplished. The first thing is that Jesus' sacrifice conquered sin. Jesus' sacrifice, our sacrifice, conquered, defeated, victory over our real, factual sins. And there are numerous passages, church, across the New Testament that use diverse language and terms to explain what this means. Things like redemption, salvation, uh, propitiation, atonement, like all those words that you read in the Bible and you're like, those are fancy words, I should remember them. Take all that, and if you had to synthesize it and boil it down, it would mean something like this. By saying that on the cross, Jesus' death had victory or conquered our sins, we really mean two important things. Real forgiveness and real peace with God. When Jesus died on the cross and conquered our sins, it gives you these two benefits. Real forgiveness and real peace with God. Let's look at the first part. Jesus' victory over sin means you and I have real, tangible, truthful forgiveness. Colossians 1.14 says that God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Some formulation of this is repeated so many times across the New Testament letters, you can't miss it. The forgiveness of sins is central to what Jesus did on the cross. So when you think about your real evil deeds that you factually have done, that you know you've done, and I know you've done, and you know I've done, that we've all done, God says he factually, truthfully, not lying to you, forgives you. Not if you feel forgiven, he says, I forgive you, because that's why Jesus died. And that sounds like that should be a simple statement, but how many Christians, though, like, we live with such guilt and pain of our past still, and then God says, why, why are you doing that? I have forgiven you. We are easier to remember our sins than the Lord is. And it crushes the spirit, doesn't it? Everything sinful, evil, and wrong that you have ever done, every vile thought, careless word, purposeful lie, whatever it is you have done, church, Jesus' death on the cross forgave it. And there is no evil that the sacrifice of the cross cannot forgive. There is nothing 
in all of human existence that the cross of Christ cannot forgive. Because if there is, someone just got disqualified from the blood of Jesus and the promises of forgiveness. Your personal ledger of evil deeds has been dipped in the blood of Christ and it's been bleached whiter than snow. Church, we have true forgiveness. Do you believe that? Like really, when, when God looks at you, Gary, he says, Gary, I've forgiven you. Do you believe that what God says is true about you? That if you're in Christ, that you are really forgiven? And not only has he forgiven our past sins, God no longer counts our present or future sins against us anymore now that we are in Christ. Hear the simple promise of Scripture. Psalm 32, 1 through 2. And Paul the Apostle uses this in his argument in Romans to talk about the same thing, real forgiveness. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin anymore. Church, God does not count our sins against us anymore. Like that's such a normal thing to say in church, but do you believe that? That there is no more evil between you and God. The things you've done do not separate you and God anymore. The things you're going to do, Jesus already died for them. The forgiveness of sins is one of those things that we tend to leave in the past as if like, okay, now that I'm in the club, it's like not a big deal anymore. But it's the foundation of factual truth that gives you assurance. You are really forgiven. And I know there's somebody in this room that struggles with the forgiveness God's offered them. I'm sure there's somebody in this room that says, I know the Bible says it, but I'm having a hard time believing it. That's the work of the devil. He gets you to take your eyes off the cross, to look at this, and says, see, you hypocrite. You're a liar. You don't really love God. You're not really in the faith. You don't have so on and so on. Look at what you've done. And look at what we've done in the past. God can't forgive that. You're too unclean. God can't forgive that adultery. God can't forgive that stealing you did. God can't forgive the way you did blank, fill, whatever. Lies, lies, lies. You are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fact. So when you face those moments and the weight and the guilt of sin comes on you for something maybe you're doing today, Maybe you're rebelling against God or something in the past. Man, the devil's good about that. His name literally is accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. He accuses you. And I forgot which famous preacher said it, someone much smarter than I, but he said, when you come to those moments and you feel the weight of your sin come back on you and you feel like God can't love you anymore, recite the truth. Tell that old devil the truth. Everything you're saying, devil, is true. I am all those things and more. But my Jesus died for those things to set me free forevermore. That may sound 
nice in this moment. But when you're in the dark of night, when you're lying on your bed and you feel the guilt and shame of life come back on you, you know what I'm talking about. The devil will come for those moments. We're most vulnerable then, which is why we don't look inwardly for our salvation. We look externally to the cross because that's where sin died. And church, when there is no more sin between you and God, for now and forever, if you've called upon the name of the Lord Jesus, the thing that separated you and God is not only gone, but now you have real fellowship, real relationship, real peace between you and your creator. For the forgiveness of sins includes real peace with your creator. Real reconciliation. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified, which is a fancy way of saying our sins have been forgiven, when you've been declared innocent by faith, trusting in Christ and his work on the cross, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. We read these passages, it's easy to gloss over, but really think about that. Paul is saying, because you've now been forgiven of your sins and you've trusted in who this Jesus is, you've trusted that his work on the cross is factual and true, you've accepted that reality, he goes, you have peace. You have peace with God. So not only does God remove the impossible obstacle of sin that is between you and him, your infinite debt that he wipes clean, he also brings you into a harmonious relationship with himself. Because where there is no more record of sin, there is no need for justice. No more wrath against the sinner and his evil deeds. Only peace remains. When two countries aren't at war, they're at peace in a way, right? And if we can understand that in a normal kind of earthly way, how much more when the God of the universe says, the war you're fighting against me, I accept your surrender because you've embraced my son. We're at peace now. And this peace with God is knowing that you have the love and faithfulness of your good and great creator on your side. Or better yet, that he has moved you onto his side, knowing that you are on the winning team of history, church. If you are in Christ, you're on the winning team. The game is rigged. We can't lose because Jesus can't lose. Are you in Christ? Have you trusted the cross? This peace of God means that you no longer have to be disappointed with life. You don't have to be mad at God anymore for all the failures and all the stuff you've been through. You don't have to be scared to live anymore. You don't have to be scared to die anymore. You don't have to be angry at your present circumstances you don't have to be these things because God is always with you and for you and taking care of you because you are now one of his own. And it's this peace that guards our hearts and our minds as we walk this pilgrim's life, knowing we belong to God Almighty as his people. And God never forsakes his people, ever. So much so that he sent his son to die for us so we could be his people forever. 
Church, it's this peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And friends, though, if we're honest today, we hinted at it earlier, but if we're honest, how many of you here this morning, even though you may be Christian, you still think God hates you or that God wants to hurt you or like maybe God has a special button on his heavenly desk with your name on it and he just likes to push it because he likes to see you squirm. Maybe that's what you think in your mind our God is like. Or maybe you have done or are doing something sinful right now, something really awful, and somewhere in your mind you think God has cast me off forever. He can't love me anymore. I'm forever unclean. I'm beyond God's love and forgiveness. All these mindsets are lies. They are false. This is not the peace the Bible speaks of. It is not what our Lord Jesus died for. So friend, you have a choice to make today. Will you trust your feelings and experiences, which are real, or will you trust the plain words of Scripture, and will you look to the cross today? Jesus died for you. And he says, because of that, I forgive you, and we have peace now. Trust not your heart, trust Christ's sacrifice. And church, not only did Jesus' sacrifice conquer our sin, bringing true forgiveness and true peace with God, it also conquered this thing called death itself. It's our second preaching point. Jesus' sacrifice factually conquered death. Jesus' sacrifice factually conquered this thing called death. And death is one of the central threads of the Bible and its consequences. Back to Romans chapter 5, 12. Paul says that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Church, every human being is doomed to die but this was not part of God's good creation. But it's a consequence of sin and rebellion in the Garden of Eden. And this sin and death, what some have termed original sin, passes on to every human person that ever has and ever will be. From the newborn baby to the person getting ready to die, everybody has this thing called sin in them. Every single human person will sin. There is no person that will not rebel against God, except for Jesus. Therefore, there is no human person that will not die. And this death we experience, we know it's more than physical. As Christians, we have the whole Bible. We have the whole story of God. But it's also a spiritual one, an eternal separation from God, what the Bible calls the second death, or hell, or the lake of fire, that type of idea a place where all sin and evil will eventually reside. We die once, and then some of us will die again in eternal separation from God. That's the tragedy of rejecting the cross. But God had a plan from the beginning, a plan to save his people. Jesus' sacrifice was God's solution to our problem called death, physical and spiritual. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Meaning, when there is no more sin, there is no more death. So the payment of sin is this thing called death, like you earn it. What do you do when you're no longer sinning? What earning do you get then? That's what Paul is trying to tell us. Just like when there is no more sin between you and God and there is only peace, likewise, when there is no more sin, you no longer have a death sentence anymore. Only righteousness and life remain. And the gift of eternal life really is that. It's to live forever with your creator. It's to live forever with God. The Bible isn't making metaphors of like happy and prosperity life or anything like that or what crazy people might say eternal life is. Eternal life really means to live forever with God, your faithful creator. Heaven when you die now and the resurrection of life in the age to come. Revelation 21 describes this eternal life reality that's for all of us who've trusted in the cross. A thing that's guaranteed to you because of what Jesus did. Revelation 21 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Church, because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, this is your reality. This belongs to you. This is the inheritance that Peter and all the apostles talk about. This is eternal life in its fullest. Heaven when you die today and eternal life in the resurrection. Praise be to God. And you and I, can freely serve the Lord today without fear of death or any other enemy because we have been promised eternal life. And Christ's sacrifice, because it not only conquers sin, granting true forgiveness and true peace with the Almighty, and it not only conquers death, granting eternal life, Christ's sacrifice also conquers our greatest enemy, the devil. Our third and final preaching point Christ's sacrifice, factually, absolutely, not what you think and feel, conquered Satan, defeated the devil, had victory over him. In church, from the beginning of the Bible, in the garden scene, to the final judgment, Satan hates God. And Satan hates God's people. And he does whatever he can to hurt, harass, kill, and deceive all mankind. That's what he does. We, Satan is not some mythological force or a concept or an abstract idea. Satan's a person. He's a real, he's a real figure. I know it might not be, it's not maybe a big deal here, but some places that call themselves churches treat Satan as just like this cosmic negativity, like the universe type talk, nonsense like that. The Bible says Satan's a, a person, a real person. And he's behind a lot of the evil in this world. Jesus says about him in John eight forty four that Jesus talking says, Satan was a murderer from the beginning 
and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And yet, why there's a lot we could say about the devil and the role he plays in this world, how he tempts people, encourages sin, causes wars and mayhem, blinds people to the gospel, fights and opposes the saints. He even uses the fear of death to get people to do things they never thought they had the capacity to do. For many atrocities have been committed by regular people because they were scared to be in death's shadow. And there's a lot we could say about the devil and what he does and all the Bible statements about him. But this is not a sermon about Satan. But what's most important to know is this. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, you and me, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And Colossians 2.15 says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities, the demonic powers, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Church, simply put, Jesus' sacrifice factually conquered the evil one, and the arch enemy no longer has power over our lives and destinies. For Christ's sacrifice heals all the sin and all the damage Satan's deception caused in the beginning. For we once were in darkness, and once our father was the devil, and we did as he wished. You were an enemy of the living God. But God, through the sacrifice of Christ, delivered us from the darkness and the demonic and transferred us into the kingdom of light. And God is now our true father and we are safe in his everlasting arms. Factually true. Satan may still oppose us, but there's absolutely nothing Satan can do to us or offer us that God already hasn't given us in Christ. And Christ's sacrifice also sealed Satan's fate. For on the day of Christ, when he returns, Satan and all his traitor angels will meet their just end. Revelation 20.10 says, The devil who had deceived the nations was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Praise God! He's beaten today, disarmed today. But think of that glorious moment when all the saints will watch Satan get paraded down the streets, whatever that looks like. In my head, I picture this moment when he's tied up and he's being dragged as a mockery through the saints. And we look at him and we say, that was him. That was our enemy. And in his final moment of rage and disgust, we will all stand watching the Lord Jesus push him into that lake of fire where he rightfully belongs, sealing his eternal. Praise God for that. All the destruction he has caused. 
all the damage he's caused, all the destroyed lives he's caused, he will meet his just end. So you and I today, we can live without fear of the evil one. We don't have to be superstitious or worried about that. He's been disarmed and defeated. And you can trust in God's continual deliverance from him. It's part of the Lord's prayer. Deliver us from the evil one. But if you are today in a season of spiritual battle, take this promise from Scripture to heart. That's what Paul told the, uh, he told the Roman Christians near the end of the book of Romans. He tells them this. He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If you're going through battle today, if you're going through the darkness, lay hold of that. God will crush Satan under your feet. You are a Christian, and the victory has been factually won. And the church, as we come to a close today and enter a time of invitation and reflection, I, I just I want to really reiterate the importance of why it matters, why we understand what happened on the cross. Because Jesus' sacrifice brought factual realities and not just wishful thinking or empty hopes. Factual realities that are now applied to you because you believed. Our faith and our heart may go up and down in life, right? You know what I'm talking about. The things we're talking about today are still true. They're promises of God. This is why the scripture will say things like this. The Apostle John says, I write these things to you guys, I write this to you all, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. God wants you to be sure of these promises. That is why we don't look to our hearts for our salvation. Like, God, am I in the faith? Help me believe. I may not be believing as much. How, how much belief is belief? Do you factually believe it's true? That's what we're talking about. It's true even when you ain't feeling it. It's true when you're sick and on your bed and you're wondering where the Lord's at. It's true when you have that miscarriage. It's true when your husband leaves you. These things are true. Lay hold of them and don't trust this. Keep your eyes on the cross. Lay hold of these promises. This is what keeps us in assurance of God's love, God's forgiveness, our relationship with the Lord, our eternal life, and how we're delivered from the evil one. Things like that. But if you're here today and you haven't trusted the Lord Jesus, you haven't bent the knee to this great king, if you haven't asked him to take control of your life, if you haven't bowed the knee, confessed him, been baptized, you know, following him in the faith, if, you haven't, if you're not that, then everything we're talking about this morning is not true for you. The only thing you can expect is to join Satan in the lake of fire, the scripture says. That's the only hope for you right now. But God is offering you the moment now, while it's called today. Will you accept what Jesus did on the cross for you? Will you bow the knee to Jesus? Be saved. Follow him in baptism. Those types of things. Or will you ignore the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and his sacrifice? Let's pray.
Lord, we come before you. And if there's anything I said that was uh, confusing, I pray that you would help sort that out, Lord. But we're talking about the factual realities of the cross. And if someone is in Christ this morning and they're struggling with their salvation, they're struggling to believe, Lord, I pray even now you would, the Holy Spirit would wash over them and be the balm to their soul, be the medicine to their heart that would remind them of these truths, that these are true. These are, these are factually true for them because they are in Christ. And if someone is not in Christ, has not believed, has not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would convict them clearly. These promises don't belong to them. And they need salvation. Lord, don't let that soul go today. We trust you, Lord. Thank you for these promises in Christ. And the people of God said...